The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Here we go. Psalm 26, a Psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, improve me. Try my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes. And I have walked in your truth. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evil doers and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocence. So I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands is a sinister scheme and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My foot stands in an even place. In the congregations, I will bless the Lord. Let's see here. We are in Deuteronomy chapter 16, brand new chapter here. And uh, we're going to do verses 1 through 8. This is entitled, A Passover to the Lord Your God. Observe the month of Aviv and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Aviv, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Therefore, you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. And no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrifice the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning. You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates which the Lord your God gives you, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, there you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight at the going down of the sun, at the time you came out of Egypt." And you shall roast and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses, and in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. I was talking to the doctor and Mabel this week. We went out for dinner, and while we were out to dinner, we were talking about what the sermon would be today and the Passover, and uh, I was talking about how we're going to skip some things, because if I didn't skip those things, the sermon would be 90 pages long. So what you want to do if you don't understand all that we're talking about is just go back and watch the other Passover sermons, which I will refer to in this sermon, okay? There's a lot of information. It'll be short, it'll be sweet, and we'll be done in no time. The opening words of the passage call out for the people of Israel to pay heed to a certain time of year, keeping the Passover to the Lord. There is a reason for this that we will look at today, but for now, suffice it to say that if you don't pay attention to something you are supposed to see, you will miss that thing most certainly. 
The entire Old Testament asked the people of Israel to pay attention. In fact, if they had really taken the stories, the commandments, the warnings, and the shadows laid down there to heart, there is no way that they could have missed Christ when he came. Everything pointed to him. At the same time, if you read a book that said someone was coming that would actually be the Messiah, would you recognize him when he came? I mean, there's that guy. He doesn't act the same as everyone else, but we saw him grow up in Nazareth. He doesn't look any different than we do. How can we be sure? Well, one way people believed in him is found in our text verse today. That's from John 7, it's verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Jesus did signs. Like the prophets of old, signs were given to confirm things. If there was a sign, it pointed to someone else. The things Jesus did pointed to the fact that he was, in fact, Israel's Messiah. However, it might still be hard to accept that someone who can do amazing things is really the Messiah. How far does someone need to actually go to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is that person? If the people of Israel didn't look at the things like the Passover as being about them, they would not have missed who Christ is. But they took the Passover as a past act and a memorial of what occurred. Instead, they should have looked at it only as a stepping stone to the true Passover. In seeing this, they would then see who he truly is. And from that, the Feast of Unleavened Bread would then make all of the sense in the world to them as well. Someday, they will see him for who he is. And they will realize it is all about him, not all about them. For now, we can see this if we are willing to acknowledge that we are in need of a Savior. When someone realizes that, the imagery of the Passover suddenly makes all of the sense in the world. And the imagery of unleavened bread can then be understood in its proper context. This is why studying the law is so important. It is a marvel and a treasure box full of wonder. Yes, great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a few thoughts for you today. The first is the bread of affliction. It's verses 1 through 8. Verse 1, observe the month of Aviv. Shamor et chodesh ha'aviv. Observe month the Aviv. Does anybody see a difference between the translation and the original? The translation says, observe the month of Aviv. The original says, observe month the Aviv. They got the the in the wrong place. The word shamar, translated as observe, signifies to keep watch, preserve, and so on. It comes from a primitive root, meaning to hedge about, as with thorns. Thus, one can think of guarding. Moses tells them they are to guard this month, meaning not forget and be sure to observe. One would think, it's the Passover. How could they forget that? The answer is because they failed to carefully guard what they had been given. It is often said that the Passover is the longest continuously held annual ceremony in the world, being observed for 3,500 years. This is incorrect. The failure of Israel to observe the Passover is noted several times in Scripture, such as 2 Kings chapter 23, Then the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. Such a Passover surely had never been held since the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. One cannot observe what one is unaware of. 
And it is the words of Moses now that are intended to make them aware of this particular responsibility. But the book of the law given by Moses had been neglected to the point that Israel did not even know that it existed. Just one chapter earlier, King Josiah had the temple repaired. During the work, the high priest found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. How could Israel carefully guard the month of the Aviv in order to observe the Passover if they didn't even know they were supposed to do so? Moses' words to guard the month were ignored until the book of the law was rediscovered. As far as the word Aviv, it speaks of the March-April time frame when the ears of grain are fresh. It was introduced into scripture in Exodus 9 verse 31 where it said, Now the flax and the barley were struck for the barley was in the head, that word there, and the flax was in bud. The redemptive calendar for Israel was then set by the Lord in Exodus 12, verse 2, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. This was at the institution of the Passover. After that, designating the month as the Aviv was first proclaimed in Exodus 13, while at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, while it was being described to the people. Here's what it says from Exodus 13. Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day, you are going out in the month of Eve. The word Aviv is used only eight times. Six times it is used to describe the month and twice to describe fresh ears of grain. It means greenness or fresh, and it indicates fresh young ears of barley grain which come forth at this time of year. In Exodus, it is also called the Aviv. Thus, this is not technically the name of the month, but it is a designation. It is in this month, the first month of the fresh years that Moses says, verse 1 going on, and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. Ve'asita Pesach le'Yehovah Elohecha, and keep Passover to Yehovah, your God. In this, Moses leaves off the article. Instead of the Passover, he simply says, Passover to Yehovah. He is making a general statement about what Israel is to do when they enter the land, even if it is about a specific event. The word Pesach, or Passover, comes from the verb Pasach. That was introduced in Exodus 12. It signifies to pass, or spring over. From Exodus 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. That word there, you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Because of this, it is called Pesach le Yehovah, or Passover to Yehovah. The Passover is on the 14th of the month of Aviv, as was commanded in Exodus 12, verse 6. The specific time of the day when the Passover was to be killed was first defined in that verse as well. It said, now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. The translation as twilight is misleading. Every time we went through that, and it was 11 times, I explained it to you because it doesn't really mean twilight like we think today. It does not mean in the evening. Rather, the Hebrew term translated as twilight is ben ha'arbaim, or between the evenings. It is a phrase that is based on biblical time. 
In the Bible, a day is divided into evening and morning. Thus, there are actually two evenings to be reckoned. The first began after 12 o'clock, and it runs through until sunset. The second begins at sunset and continues until night, meaning the whole time of twilight. This would, therefore, be between 12 o'clock and the termination of twilight. Between the evenings, then, speaks of the three o'clock sacrifices at the temple. They were considered as the evening sacrifices, even though to us it would be deemed as an afternoon sacrifice. With that understood, Moses next says, verse 1 going on, for in the month of Aviv. Again, in this verse it says, ha-aviv, or the Aviv. In essence, in the month of the fresh young years, the Lord brought you out. Also, this is the last time that the word Aviv is found in all of Scripture. After this, the first month will be known by its proper name, Nisan, a name found in both Nehemiah and the book of Esther. Or it will simply be called the first month, such as in Joshua 4:19. Verse 1 continues, The Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. As the start of the new day in the Bible begins at sundown, this then refers to the 15th of the month when the moon was full. The words here seem contradictory to those of Exodus 12:22 and Numbers 33:3. There they state from Exodus 12, and you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. Okay, and then in Numbers 33, they departed from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. On the day after the Passover, the children of Israel went out with boldness in the sight of all of the Egyptians. But this verse says, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. So it sounds like a contradiction. Scholars will call it a contradiction. They don't know what they're talking about. Moses saying in this verse that they were brought out by night is inclusive of the entire process of the Passover. The Lord accomplished the work of bringing them out by night. Pharaoh gave them permission to leave at night, and the people prepared for their departure at night. They then departed in the morning with the completion of the process. Verse 2, Therefore you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice Passover to Jehovah your God. Again, no article precedes Passover. It is a general statement about the observance. It is a Passover to Jehovah. And the statement encompasses not merely the Passover itself, but the entire feast adjoined to the Passover, meaning the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Does everybody see why having that article properly translated is so important? And when they don't, you get a false sense of what the Hebrew is telling us. As it next says, verse 2 continues, from the flock and the herd. Tzon ubakar, flock and herd. The Passover sacrifice was of the flock, either a lamb or a kid of the goats. By saying flock and herd, because the Passover is only a flock animal. Everybody see that? Herd is not a flock animal. By saying flock and herd here, it is referring not only to all of the sacrifices mandated throughout the entire Feast of Unleavened Bread, which are precisely detailed in Numbers 28, but also to any festival meals eaten during the week of feasting. This could include the firstborn of the flocks, the tithe animals, and so on. In other words, Passover without the article, is being used to signify the entire feast. This is seen in the New Testament, where Luke also 
leads off the article before the word Passover. It says in Luke 22, 1, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. This is next mandated to be, verse 2 continues, in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. The unity of worship called for in all of the previous chapters continues to be conveyed here as well. Referring to appearing at the place chosen by the Lord is stated in one way or another six times between now and verse 16. Thus, it is its own stress and it is to be carefully heeded. All of Israel was to appear before the Lord without exception. Next, as a continued confirmation that the term Passover used here is inclusive of the entire feast, Moses says, verse 3, you shall eat no leavened bread with it. Lo tochal alav chametz. No, you shall eat with it leavened. The word chametz used here speaks of that which is leavened. This was originally stated in Exodus 12, 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. For the entire feast, known as Passover, nothing leavened was to be eaten by the people. As Moses next says, verse 3 continues, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. Shivat yamim tochal alav matzot. Seven days you shall eat with it unleavened bread. As the Passover is a single day, and yet it says it is to be eaten for seven days with unleavened bread, this then absolutely confirms that Moses is using the term Passover to speak of the entire feast, which is made up of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Moses next defines the matzot, or unleavened bread, saying, verse 3 continues, that is, the bread of affliction, lechem oni, bread affliction. The word oni comes from ana, signifying to be bowed down or afflicted. Remember that? You'll hear it again in this sermon. The question concerning this bread is whether it is referring to the bread itself, being tasteless and thus afflicting to eat, or if it is referring to the bread as a memorial of afflictions. It's probably speaking of both. The bread is bland and tasteless. You all know that. We have it from week to week, and thus it is afflicting. But that is to then remind the people of what they had been delivered from and what they had been delivered to, as well as the process by which it came about. With that understood, Moses says, verse 3 continues, For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. The word translated as haste is chepazon. It signifies haste, but it implies haste, which is in a state of alarm. It comes from the verb chafaz, to be in trepidation, hurry, or alarm. This must speak of the entire process. The people were in bondage in Egypt and were thus afflicted. The destroyer passed through and only the blood would save them, but others would die. The people were brought out quickly and without time to prepare their bread. They had a hope of a new and better future in a fairer land, but they had to endure the trials of getting to that future on the march there and so on. Thus, the bread of affliction is that tasteless bread which speaks of everything the people had faced and would continue to face in the process of their redemption from Egypt. Verse 3 continues, that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. Moses says, le ma'an tizkor, to end purpose, you may remember. The eating of the bread during this feast has a specific intent. It is to remind the people 
Moses ties the day in which they were brought out into the reason for eating the bread of affliction. And that remembrance was to be for all the days of your life. The idea here is essentially you are not to forget where you came from, how you got here, and who got you here. With that understood, Moses says, verse 4, And no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days. Here Moses uses the word seor, or leaven, for the very last time in Scripture. The word used earlier referred to that which is leavened. This word refers to the leaven itself. In other words, not only is there to be nothing leavened in the houses, but there was not to be any leaven at all. It is an absolute prohibition in all ways. This takes the reader back to Exodus 12 again, where all three of these pertinent words are used in one verse. Exodus 12, 15, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. That's matzot. That's this over here. On the first day you shall remove leaven, seor, from your houses. That's the actual leaven. For whoever eats leavened bread, chametz, that's the bread that has been leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Verse 4 continues. Nor shall any of the meat which you sacrifice the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning. This is referring to the Paschal lamb as was originally stated. Exodus 12, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Again, the word twilight must be explained. In using the term ba'arev, or in the evening, it is referring to the 14th of the month when the lamb was slaughtered. However, the meal is eaten in the night, making it the 15th of the month. Does everybody remember that? Genesis 1, it says evening and morning were the first day, okay? The day in Israel begins at the evening. Even to this day, when they start the new day, it's always in the evening. Here it reads, Asher tizbach ba'arev bayom harishon laboker, which you sacrifice in the evening, in the day, the first, to the morning. The lamb is slain on the 14th, Passover. The evening is then the transition, the folding over into the next day. And then the 15th begins the first day of unleavened bread. Nothing that was eaten from the start of that day was to be left at morning time. Verse 5, you may not sacrifice the Passover. Here the article is used, ha-pesach, or the Passover. It is not speaking in general terms, but rather of the sacrificial lamb itself, which stands as representative of the day. Verse 5 continues, within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, be'achad she'arecha, in one your gates. The meaning is that they were not to sacrifice the Passover in one of their towns, symbolized by the gates of the town. Instead, Moses again speaks of the unity of worship that he's been doing all the way through Deuteronomy, saying, verse 6, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. Again, as in verse 2, Moses refers to the place chosen by the Lord to make his name abide, which is thus referring to the location of the tabernacle or temple. It is to this place that, verse 6 continues, there you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight. The phrase has to be taken in a general sense. Again, the word twilight is ba'arev, or in the evening. However, 
That has already been explained earlier as meaning between the evenings and thus in the afternoon. This is clearly understood from the rest of scripture where the evening sacrifice refers to the afternoon or the 3 p.m. sacrifice. It occurs between the evenings. It is at this time and in the place the Lord chooses to make his name dwell that this was to occur. Verse 6 continues, at the going down of the sun. Again, the words have to be taken in a general sense and with the other relevant passages. The sun starts going down at midday, right? You got the sun up here, and it starts actually going down after 12 o'clock. In the afternoon, the Passover was to be sacrificed, 3 p.m., and in the next day, meaning at evening, when the 14th passes over into the 15th, the Passover was eaten. Moses then says, verse 6 continues, at the time you came out of Egypt. Moed tsetecha mi Mitzrayim. Appointed time, you came from Egypt. This is not speaking of the time of day, but of the time appointed by the Lord for it to occur. It is a general statement of the entire process, all centered on the time of the sacrifice of the Lamb. It happened during a particular month, on a particular day, at a particular time. Everything is centered on that moment. From there, Moses then speaks of the events which occur at the outset of the next day, meaning the 15th of the month, verse 7, and you shall roast and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses. Moses uses the word bashal, which comes from the idea of growing ripe as a harvest. At times, it means to boil or seethe, but the instructions for the original Passover explicitly said that the Passover was to be roasted over the fire and not boiled. I'll read you that again. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in the fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. As this is now to be conducted in a large gathering rather than in the homes of Egypt, it was probably cooked over a fire, but maybe with cookware gratings designed to accommodate innumerable people. This is seen, for example, in 2 Chronicles 35, where the same word is used twice in obviously different contexts. Here it goes. 2 Chronicles 35, 13. Also, they roasted. That's the word bashal. The Passover offerings with the fire according to the ordinance, but the other holy offerings they boiled, that same word, bashal, in pots and cauldrons and in pans and divided them quickly among all the lay people. And again, Moses notes that it was to be both roasted and eaten at the place the Lord chose for his name to dwell. With that understood, he then says, verse 7 continues, and in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. As the entire feast goes on for more than a week, the obvious meaning of this is that after the people had gathered and collectively eaten the Passover and spent the night together, they then returned to the tents they brought or to the places they stayed during the entire week. This is again evidenced in 2 Chronicles where it says, And the children of Israel who were present kept the Passover at the time and the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. The entire night of the Passover was probably, I'm just guessing here, probably spent in a large gathering with much celebration and enjoyment, followed by a long morning of sleeping. Moses next turns to the rules of the adjoining feast of unleavened bread. Before I go on, I'm going to say this now, I'm going to say it again, but I want you to get the symbolism. There is a difference between the feast of the Lord in one sense and in another. Okay, one is a feast, Moed, an appointed time. Another one is a Chag. It's a feast to the Lord, but it has a different context. 
Some of them are fulfilled by the Lord. The pilgrim feasts are us living our life in Christ. That's the seven days that follow the Passover. Did the Lord die as the Passover lamb? Yes. And then from there, the Feast of Unleavened Bread points to our life in him. And that's the same with all three of the pilgrim feasts. That's why they're called pilgrim feasts is because the people participated in the Feast of the Lord. Everybody got that? Yes, we're going to go over that. That's correct, though. You are right. Verse 8, six days you shall eat unleavened bread. These words certainly do not mean only as in this is the only thing you can eat. Rather, any bread that was eaten was to be unleavened. Joshua 5.11 notes that on the first Passover in the land they ate both unleavened bread and the produce of the land, specifically parched grain. This week of the feast would be spent at the place of the sanctuary, and it would certainly involve eating the tithes and offerings of the people that they brought to the various pilgrim feasts. However, for this feast, only unleavened bread could accompany those things. Nothing with leaven was to be eaten during the entire feast. Another point which must be clarified is that this is actually an eight-day event. It involves the Passover and then seven days. And so when it says here, six days you shall eat unleavened bread, it means six followed by one, which is, verse 8 continues, and on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. Here, a word previously only used in connection with the Feast of Tabernacles is seen, atzeret or sacred assembly. It comes from atzar, which signifies to shut, restrain, and so on. Thus, it is a completing ceremony which is dedicated to Jehovah. Although it does not say it here, unleavened bread was to be eaten on this day as well. That is clearly defined in Leviticus 23 and elsewhere. I'll read you it from Leviticus 23. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. That's the first day. Then on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. Everybody see that? One plus seven, eight. It's not six as this verse seems to imply. Scholars will call out on it. They don't know what they're talking about. They have mishandled what is being presented by Moses as a special convocation, but not as a Sabbath, which is an important point. It says, verse 8 finishes with, you shall do no work on it. This is defined more precisely in Leviticus 23, where it said, no customary work. In other words, meals could be prepared, but no regular work was to be conducted. Thus, unless it fell on a Sabbath, it was not a Sabbath observance. Everybody know that because on the Sabbath, you could not prepare food. Everybody remember that because we'll go through that in another sermon coming up soon. A lamb, spotless and pure, without any defect, will be sacrificed in my place. And looking at that lamb, I can certainly detect the greatest love and grace. This I see looking upon his face. Oh, that I could refrain and not see him die. Oh, if there could be any other way, how could this lamb go through it for one such as I? Oh, God, this perfect lamb alone, my sin debt can pay. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the sinless one there on Calvary's tree. He has prevailed and the path to heaven has been unfurled. The Lamb of God who died for sinners like you and me. Our second thought today, pictures of Christ. 
To get a full picture of everything that Moses summarizes in these eight verses would mean going back and watching quite a few sermons from Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. As I said, it's probably 90 pages or more. It's not possible to fit in everything into such a short summary. However, a brief review of what Moses said will give an overall brushstroke of what is being pictured. First, Moses begins with the words, observe the month of Aviv. He is telling the people once and forever to pay heed and keep watch during this month. That alone hints at the coming of the Messiah. The Passover was conducted during this month and it was to be an annual memorial to the people. But the shadow would someday be replaced with the substance. If the people paid heed to the typology, it would be as clear as crystal to them what was occurring when the events coincided with the work of Jesus Christ. Without getting dogmatic about the significance of the word Ha-Aviv or the Aviv, it may possibly be a reference to Jesus' words spoken on this exact day about 1,400 years later. As he was going to be crucified, he said, For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? That's Luke 23, 31. Obviously, wood and grain are not the same thing, but the idea is... There is the fresh green ears and there is the moist green tree, as the Greek implies. Of his words, Albert Barnes interprets the meaning of that verse, saying, If they, the Romans, do these things to me, who am innocent and blameless, if they punish me in this manner in the face of justice, what will they not do in relation to this guilty nation? That's exactly what Jesus was referring to. At the time of that which is fresh and green, meaning at the time of Christ's work, fire is resisted. But to reject that greenness would attract the fire, meaning judgment. As Jameson Fawcett Brown then says, if such sufferings alight upon the innocent one, the very Lamb of God, what must be in store for those who are provoking the flames? The entire point of the Passover is the presentation of an innocent lamb to redeem the people from their bondage, meaning sin. And so Moses told them to watch, watch at the time of the Aviv, meaning the green, and at that time to observe Passover to the Lord. As noted, there was no article before Passover in verse 1. It speaks of the entire eight days of both Passover and unleavened bread. Thus the term flock and herd speaks of all of the sacrifices of the feast, all of which speak of the work of Christ. You can go back to Numbers 28 and see that, or go through all the animals described in Leviticus. We went through every one of them, every part of every single animal, everything that is offered, everything that is cut away, everything points to Jesus Christ. And that explains the constant repetition of the words, the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. Those words are referring to Jesus, in whom is the name of the Lord. He is the place where the people of God are to meet and share in those sacrifices which only prefigure the work that he accomplished. From there, Moses noted that following the Passover, the people were to eat unleavened bread for seven days. It is the Passover that leads into the feast. As seen in the previous sermons, it anticipates Christ's cross that leads into our sinless state before God. This is what the feast only pictured. The people ate unleavened bread, which pictures our positional state of sinlessness, which Jim was referring to in Christ. Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says there, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened, meaning sinless. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. That's the feast of Passover. Therefore, let us keep the feast. This is the feast of unleavened bread, which follows Passover. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. When Paul says, let us keep the feast, he is not referring to the Passover. That is Christ and his work for us. Rather, he is referring to what the feast that followed the Passover pictures. Moses then called it lechem oni, or bread affliction. As I noted, that is surely referring to the bread itself, being tasteless and thus afflicting to eat. And it is also referring to the bread as a memorial of afflictions. As we saw, oni comes from ana. It is a word used twice in Isaiah chapter 53 when describing Jesus Christ. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and anah, afflicted. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. That word again, anah, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That resolves the memorial of afflictions, but the bread itself is its own picture of affliction. As Israel was to eat the bread of affliction, it anticipates that we too will face our own afflictions. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, think of our eating the unleavened bread, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Just as Christ suffered and then entered into his glory, we are left here for a season, rather than being taken home immediately. And during our stay, we will suffer our own afflictions during this time of hope in Christ and of the glory to come. Moses then went on to explain the reason for the bread of affliction, saying that the people came out in haste, and thus they were to remember that day all the days of their lives. This is exactly what happens to believers. As noted, he used the word chippazon. It signifies haste, but it implies haste which is in a state of alarm. It comes from the verb chafaz, to be in trepidation, hurry, or alarm. We aren't brought out of our bondage to sin gradually. Rather, we are brought out instantly and certainly in a state of trepidation because of the sin we bore anybody that hears you're a sinner and you need a savior all of a sudden you realize oh my god i need a savior those who understand the significance of the work of christ in their lives know that the word haste hardly captures the sense if we are wise we will then remember that moment all the days of our lives never returning to the life we were saved from Moses then spoke again of not having any leaven among the people for the whole time of the feast. It is a picture of clearing sin out of our lives, living for God and not with sin. It's why Paul said to purge out the old leaven. But Moses continued by reminding the people to not leave any of the meat of the sacrifice until morning. The idea here is that the feast anticipates our sinless state before God. As Christ died for our sins and then went into the grave that same day, we are to leave our sins behind. On the first day of our walk with him, we are to live as if it is so. 
As Paul notes, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Israel was redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They had nothing to boast in except what God had done. The deed was finished. They were to live for the Lord and not for the world from that time on. This is what they were to remember each year, and it is what we must remember every single day of our lives in Christ. Moses next spoke to them about not sacrificing the Passover in one of your gates, but only at the place where the Lord chose to place his name. First, it is a note of exclusivity. There is one place and one place alone where redemption can be made, and that is at the cross of Calvary and in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the place where the Lord has chosen to place his name and make it abide. And secondly, Moses' words tend to anticipate the statement made by the author of Hebrews, where he said, therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. The context of Hebrews is speaking of the animal sacrifices that were burned outside of the camp, thus picturing Christ who died outside of the walls of Jerusalem. But even the walls of Jerusalem, which surrounded the temple, had their own gates, within which people lived. Christ, who is the true spot where the name of the Lord is placed, died outside of any gates. This may stretch the typology a little bit too much, but it may not as well. Moses next mentioned the sacrifice being at twilight. That is less specific than what has been previously stated, but the point is made. Christ died at the exact same time as the Passover lamb was sacrificed, three o'clock in the afternoon. The Passover lamb sacrifice coincided with the daily afternoon lamb offering at the tabernacle. Each day, two lambs were offered, one in the morning and one in the evening. Together, they are equated as a single day's offering and thus are considered as one offering. The Gospel of Mark provides the clarity of this. Now, it was the third hour and they crucified him. It then next says, now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it up to him to drink saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Mark, who is in agreement with the other gospel writers, shows that Christ was crucified at the exact same time as when the morning offering was being made, 9 a.m. He then says that Christ died at the exact same time that the evening offering was being made, 3 p.m., Thus, the two lamb offerings encompass and stand representative of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Passover lamb, which was slaughtered at this same time, is given as one aspect of Christ's work, while the daily lamb offerings were given as another aspect of Christ's work. Moses finishes up with the instructions concerning how and where to prepare the Passover, which was followed with the note of returning to their tents. In other words, There's one gospel, one way to receive it, and one Lord who makes it possible. Nothing else will suffice. After receiving that, we are to live out our lives as is right. Moses then repeated the thought that the people shall eat unleavened bread. It is to be taken as a positive command. It doesn't say you may not eat bread with leaven for six days. Instead, it says six days you shall eat 
unleavened bread. They were to eat unleavened bread during the entire feast. This goes in picture to what was just cited from Paul in 1 Corinthians. He said, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Not only are we to not partake of sin, but we are to actively live our lives in sincerity and truth. It is not that we can abstain from the whole if we abstain from one. It is that we are to abstain from one while partaking in the other. Moses then finished up with the note concerning the Atzeret, or sacred assembly. It is a completing ceremony to the Lord. That surely refers to the ending of life and our meeting with the Lord, where we are given what we now only possess in God's eyes. He deems us as sinless, and we are no longer being imputed sin. But someday, we will be sinless, no longer even committing sin. Can't wait for that day, by the way. This passage today speaks of the marvel of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, and of our responsibility when we are in Christ. He is our Passover lamb, and we are his people. Every detail associated with this passage anticipates the person and work of Jesus Christ for us and then our responsibilities toward him. As this is so, and as he was faithful to uphold his portion of these types and pictures, then let us, likewise, be faithful to live the lives we have been called to. Let us live for Christ and be pleasing and faithful people living out our lives, pursuing his righteousness and sinlessness as our highest desire and goal for all of our days. May it be so to the glory of God. Amen. The story of Jesus is a wonderful story. It's neglected by people that neglect the Old Testament. And without understanding the Old Testament, you really can't grasp the New Testament. Now, I had somebody email me and he asked about the uh, uh, churches, seven churches in Revelation. This is a person that attends online. I won't give his name because I don't have permission to, but he mailed me this morning and asked some questions about that. He's been watching somebody that uh, I, I'm absolutely sure that it's a hyper-dispensationalist because this person said the seven churches do not pertain to the Gentile church and speaking to the Jews. And I've heard this before. I've heard this by people, you know, hyper-dispensationalists, as they say those are Jewish feasts and the symbolism in the Revelation 1 through 3, where he's addressing the churches, is all Jewish. It says, you know, the uh, uh, menorah and the this, and then talking about all of the things that are in the Jewish feasts, when in fact, they're not Jewish feasts. And I have to keep saying this to people so you don't forget. They are feasts of the Lord. They have nothing to do with Israel, except that Israel was told to do them. They are the feasts of the Lord. The symbolism is not Jewish. The symbolism is heavenly. Jesus Christ is the symbolism. That's why it says in Exodus that you shall make the things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And the book of Hebrews then says that the things that he saw are representations of heavenly things, meaning Christ. Okay? When we look in Revelation at all of these things being revealed, if you don't know the Old Testament, you can say, oh, those are Jewish symbolisms, and so I'm a hyper-dispensationalist. That is improper theology, and that will lead you in only one bad direction. If you're saved, you're saved. But if you are taught hyper-dispensationalism, you will not be saved because they're saying that there is two Gospels. They're saying that there is a Gospel to the Jewish people and there's a Gospel to the Gentiles. And that is the farthest thing from the truth. So you need to be very careful to not let, as Paul says, a little leaven into the bread. 
Do not let that happen. He's specifically speaking of the church, but it'll happen in your own theology as well. You must be careful to not accept somebody. And I said this during the uh, Thursday Bible class, just because he's in the pulpit. I don't care if he has the term doctor before his name. I don't care if he's got 10,000 degrees in theology. I don't care if he stands in a pulpit. I don't care if he's a professor at a university. Do not trust anybody, including Charlie Garrett, until you have read this book and until you know what it says. Because otherwise, you are being sold a bill of goods that you have no idea about. You must read this word, and you must contemplate it. And then you, now you know the word, and you hear something, you'll say, well, that doesn't sound right. You can't do that unless you know this word. Please read this word. Read it in the morning. Read it at night. Read it every day of your life. Meditate on it. Contemplate it. Listen to other sermons. That's fine. But do not get led astray by anything that is not proper doctrine. Jesus Christ died for your sins. Jesus Christ was buried. Jesus Christ rose again. That is the gospel. That's 1 Corinthians 15. Down a couple verses from there, Paul says, this is the same gospel that Peter proclaimed. Okay, there's one gospel and one gospel only. And the Bible says that if you receive that message, Christ died for sins, meaning I'm a sinner and I need a savior. I understand that he was buried meaning he went into the grave, he was really dead, and that he rose again, proving that he is God, and proving that he had no sin because he came out of the grave, because the wages of sin is death, and if he had his own sin, then he'd be in the grave, but he died for sin, and if he came out of the grave sinless and without any sin, what does that mean? Your sin is in the grave. The doctrine of eternal salvation, you are now being deemed as God, as sinless, and that's seen right in the passage we saw today. Because it says anybody that participates in uh, leaven during this entire feast will be cut off from his people. All of us sin, don't we? We should be cut off from our people unless God is doing something for us. It's called the non-imputation of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God is not imputing you your sins when you are in Christ Jesus. You are saved eternally. Thank God for Jesus Christ. This is the glory of what God has done. This is the marvel of what he has done for you. Please, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ, today is the day to do so. Please. Our closing verse comes from Galatians 5. It's verse 9. Here it is. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Do not let sin into your life, and especially bad doctrine, because bad doctrine is sin. But you're not being imputed it if you do, if you're in Christ. I want to repeat that again. If you're not in Christ, you're not going to get saved by getting bad doctrine or heresy. But if you're in Christ, you're not going to be imputed your sin. You're just going to lose rewards for not being a diligent student of the Bible or not helping that old lady across the road or whatever other thing you're supposed to be doing to honor the Lord. If the Lord puts it on your heart that I'm supposed to go down to the projects and do something today and you don't do it, hey, that's between you and him. You're not going to lose your salvation but you need to do what the Lord puts on your heart, okay? Next week is Deuteronomy. You don't have to walk old ladies across the road. That is not a condition for salvation, okay? I was making a point. All right. Next week is Deuteronomy 16, 9 through 12. The final feast of the year for folks to tackles. It's entitled, Observe the Feast of Tabernacles. That'll be our 50th Deuteronomy sermon. You know, I may be wrong on that. I think I skipped one of the... Uh, the sermons in this. 9 through 12, is it Tabernacles? Let me read that right now. I think we're supposed to do the Feast of Weeks next week. Give me a second. I may have, you know, sometimes I type things and I have to do three sermons at one time 
Uh, hang on, what, we're in Deuteronomy 16. Yeah, we're doing the Feast of Weeks. Forget the poem I just made, the little uh, clip. We're doing the Feast of Weeks. Okay, let me think. Um, it's going to be Deuteronomy 16, verses 9, the Feast of Weeks. Um, let me Perhaps think of... just tweaked. Yeah, uh, your, your theology you needs to tweaks, okay? We're going to be doing the Feast of Weeks. All right. Anyway, that will be our 50th Deuteronomy sermon. I apologize. You know, when I do that, what, I get to doing the programming and the, uh, the uh, graphics for each sermon, and that is eight weeks out from when I give the sermon because I got 10 weeks of sermons. Okay, so when I do that, I've got to go back to the previous sermon to get the how many sermons it's been, and I've got to go to the next sermon to find out what the next sermon is. And so I'm always, I've got to be very careful, and I screwed that one up. I'm glad I caught it. It will not be the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you, but he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? All right. I got a, uh, oh, no, before I give you a poem and finish up, I have a question for you. This should be rather easy for somebody that's read their Bible. Okay? <laughs> I tried to think of something that would make it easy on you. And if you win, you get one of those pins from Alana over there. So make sure you pick it up. What is the last chapter in the Bible that presents Christ as our lamb? The last chapter in the Bible where Christ is presented as the lamb. It's going to be in Revelation. Well, that's the, that's the book, but I'm asking for the chapter, so I, I heard lots of revelations. I need the last chapter that Christ is presented as the lamb. Yeah, he's looking online right now. What, what'd you say? No? 22! You get it. He's called the lamb on the last page of the Bible. And I thought, that yeah, was easy. You should have just yelled it out and been wrong. That's okay. I was going to say, we need Burke because he gets... Oh, Burke would have gotten it. Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Okay, I got a poem for you and we'll be done. A Passover to the Lord your God. Observe the month of Aviv and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. Yes, in his sight. For in the month of Aviv, the Lord brought you out from Egypt by night. Therefore, you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God, exalting his fame from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. You shall eat no unleavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it of leaven, not even a taste. That is the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. That you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life to keep this memory from being from you stripped. And no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days. Take this as a warning. Nor shall any of the meat which you sacrifice the first day at twilight remain over until morning. You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates which the Lord your God gives you. But at the place where your God chooses to make his name abide, there you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight. So you shall do. At the going down of the sun, at the time you came out of Egypt in a march, not in a run. And you shall roast and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses it to be so. And in the morning you shall turn into your tents, you shall go. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it as instructed by me. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. 
We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Christ our Passover lamb. And we thank you that he has done every single thing necessary throughout all of redemptive history to save every single person that simply believes. That's all that you ask of us is to simply believe. And you even promise us a blessing for doing so. Thomas saw and he believed, but those who have not seen and believed, they are blessed. We thank you for that. Help us to get this word out to the world before the end day comes when we can no longer do so, whether it be in the passing of our life or in the rapture of the church. Either way, help us to be responsible with our time and to tell those people that so desperately need to hear of the saving grace of Christ. We pray this to you, knowing that you can do so much more than we could ever imagine if we will just follow you in that, that regard. And so help us to do so, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody see how important a single article can be in front of a couple of words? It changes the entire context of what is being presented. And don't get me wrong, translation is a very hard thing to do. I'm not trying to belittle the New King James Version. I love the version. They do a good job of it. But um, uh, there are just times where, you know, if you have the patience and you can go to Young's literal translation of the Bible, you'll get a very good rendering there. I've found very few very few errors in Young's translation, but it's real hard to read. Okay, so prepare yourself to get ready for some English you may not quite be familiar with, but wow, does he do a good job of that. Young's literal translation, Robert Young, he goes back 300 years or so. Great job he did. Anyway, um, today we're talking about the Passover, okay, and we talked about the matzot, the unleavened bread. And so from time to time, I will do this. It'll take just a minute, we'll be done, okay. People want to understand the symbolism of the Lord's Supper. What is correct and why? Okay, and so uh, somebody emailed me and she said, "Would you review that again?" And there are four basic views of the Lord's Supper. Okay, the first is the Roman Catholic view that is called transubstantiation. This is not a deep theological treatise. I got it in some of my sermons. You can go back and read it there and get more information. Yeah, all it is is it simply says that this is Christ. This is his body and this is his blood. When you eat it, it becomes his body. In other words, it's a bloody reenactment of the cross of Calvary. You are actually eating his body. Okay, that's taken from John chapter 6. It's a misreading of what he is saying there. Okay, that is incorrect. The second is consubstantiation. All right, consubstantiation is Martin Luther. He didn't want to get burned at the stake as a heretic, and so he came up with consubstantiation. It's not the body and the blood, but it's the, the elements are Christ as fire is in metal. So if you take fire and put it under metal, it's real hot and it burns your fingers, okay? Same effect. It doesn't mean anything. He just didn't know what else to say without getting burned. So uh, it's, it's not fire and metal. It's not consubstantiation that Christ is in the elements like, you know, heat and metal. That's not correct, okay? The third is the Calvinistic view. There are many views, but these are the four predominant views. The fourth is the Calvinistic view. That's John Calvin says that Christ is with us spiritually when we take the elements, okay? Now, there's a problem with that, and it's as obvious as the nose on your face, is that Christ is with you always. You can talk to him anytime. He's never away from you. He doesn't just show up when you take the Lord's Supper. He's always with you, okay? That is... 
a promise from him right out of his word, and it's also not thinking the passage through very clearly. Despite being a real, real great theologian in some areas, John Calvin had a lot of deficiencies. And don't get me wrong, that was many, many years ago. There was not a lot of theology to build upon, and so he built what he could. I try not to slam him too much, but some of his theology is just wrong. Okay, that is one of the things. Uh, the Zwingli view, okay, is the final view, and that is that um, it is a uh, memorial of Christ's sacrifice, okay? We are remembering what Christ did when we take this, all right? And it doesn't have anything to do with the literal body and blood of the Lord or him being present or anything like that. It's a memorial remembering. Just like baptism, we are baptized, okay, as a picture of what Christ did for us. We're buried, and we're raised. We're buried with Christ in his death, raised to newness of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a public proclamation of the work of Christ. So if you haven't been baptized, you probably shouldn't be baptized. Okay, but this is the same thing. He only gave us two ordinances. He gave us baptism and the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, uh, we take this. And we know that this is the correct view because when he picked this up, he said, this is my body. Is this the body of Christ? No. He said it. he was holding it in his hands. Now, if somebody had said, oh, that's my body, then you might be able to make the argument of transubstantiation or whatever. But he didn't. He picked up the bread and he said, this is my body. He was telling you, this is a metaphor for what I am about to do. That's how we know that that's the correct view. So, we get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from Scripture. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul wrote these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have blessed this bread. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And that's a picture of Christ right there. He died for our sins, and he is the bread of life that came out of the grave. And if you look at this, it has no leaven. It has no sin in it. And Christ is the sinless bread, okay? If you look at it, I'm not going to hold it up because it'll fall apart, but it's got little stripes all over it the way it was um, uh, made, and that is a picture of the stripes on his back. And if you hold it up to the light, you can see right through it because it's got little piercings all over it. He was pierced for our iniquities. So this is a picture of what Christ did for us, okay? And he broke it, and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Borei Puri HaGuffin. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. Okay, this is his blood, he said, shed for him. Okay, it's a picture of that. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, there's a couple things about that. Christ died and we're proclaiming that. He didn't stay in the grave because he is coming again. That's right. He's risen and he's coming again. We don't worship a dead Savior. We worship a risen Savior who is, has all of heaven's authority in his grasp right now okay and he is going to return someday for his people so this is what we do until he comes again therefore whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the lord but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup 
For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Two points. The first point is that uh, it says, let a man uh, take of the cup and the bread, the bread and the, the cup. And that is inclusive because the Greek, like English up until a couple years ago, when you said he in a congregation, it meant everybody. Okay. The masculine stands for all. It's not excluding anybody. Okay. First point. And the second point is that um, when it says that uh, you need to take this in a worthy manner, not in an unworthy manner, lest you drink it and take judgment to yourself, the very point that you are saying, I don't deserve this, means you're taking it in a worthy manner. You're not to say, I'm not going to take it because I'm not worthy today. The fact that you know you're not worthy means that you should be taking it because he has made you worthy because of it. It's the people that flippantly say, oh, I'm going to go up there and take that because I'm a good guy. That's what he's talking about. You're not a good guy. None of us are. Christ is, and we are in him. Thank God for Jesus Christ.